0: This is Book TV's Afterwards podcast. This week, Zerlina Maxwell, MSNBC political analyst and author of the book, The End of White Politics. She offers her thoughts on identity politics and how to create a more inclusive democratic party.
1: She's interviewed by Maria Kumar, CEO of Voto Latino.
0: Hi, my name is Maria Teresa, and I'm so happy to be here with Zerlina Maxwell. I'm honored to have this time to discuss your vital book, The End of White Politics. This book really challenges what we have accepted as the status quo for the Democratic Party. And I think right now, as we are trying to you know, read into the tea leaves of 2020, it couldn't have come at a better time. This is a critique that could not be more challenged than in America right now. But we also understand that it is imperative that people in the political world certainly in it, take your book to heart and look at it as an opportunity to change the game come this election. So with that, I'd love to basically recognize you know the wonderful work that you have done as an author but as an act- activist but and as a political operative yourself. So I really believe that it's going to get your the work that you did, the book that you've written will provide us some inside baseball that's oftentimes okay. not part of the political politics. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm so happy to see you. Um,
1: I know all of us are in quarantine. So it's so nice to see people's faces um, and to see that they're safe (laughs) and healthy because this is a scary time. So I'm so happy to be here.
0: So I want, you know, I want to get started because I think that, again, this, all of the work that you're doing is so relevant. And I think and you have the bona fides. You work part of the Hillary Clinton campaign. You have your own progressive serious show. And both of us, uh, I think we both got to know each other because we both provide analysis on MSNBC. Yes and yet in the campaigns and in the mainstream media oftentimes we forget the narratives that are propelling this incredible action right now that we're seeing in the streets and hopefully will translate into the voting booth so talk a little bit about what that means i know that in your book you touch on identity politics as embracing identities other than those that are white male and heteronormative and running political campaigns based on needs and experiences of those identities and you shared that this is the future what do you think so many people have a fundamental misunderstanding of what identity politics really are? Well, I think that after 2016
1: in particular, identity politics got a bad rap. I mean, it was a, a term originally coined by a feminist in 1977 um, to uh, lay out and articulate how people who have marginalized identities uh, can you know, build coalitions to attain political power. And so one of the things after 2016 we did is say, well, Hillary Clinton played identity politics by talking about racial justice, by talking about white privilege openly and directly, um, and, and talking about groups of different, differing identities, people with differing abilities. And she, she sort of had, had a riff in her stump about the variety of identities and how it intersects. And so what we didn't realize um, in 2016 is that she was talking about identity politics, but so was Donald Trump. Donald Trump was talking about white identity. And too often in politics, we center whiteness, we center white identity, we center white voters um, in every single aspect of our political conversations, in the message. And so my book basically lays out the fact that, wait, hold up, we can't criticize identity politics just because it's finally Black people and Latinx people and the AAPI community asserting their uh, rights and ability to attain positions of political power and representation, just because we're, we're doing it doesn't make it a bad thing. Um, Donald Trump utilized it to his benefit. And wait, we're going to be the majority soon. So maybe we should. And I thought that's where I want to unpack that with you. It. Yeah,
0: well, that's where I want to unpack because oftentimes when we talk about identity politics, it's oftentimes divorced from economic inequities. Right. But that really is the underlying, right? Exactly. So if I apply for a job and I'm discriminated against based on who I love, then that affects my economic my economics, if I cannot get a promotion because of the color of my skin or because I have an accent, that actually is an economic injustice. So talk about this, because when when Trump talks about white grievance, he does it in a coded way, but at the end of the day, it's because everybody feels like they have less than an economic opportunity. So yeah. talk about yeah. that. Yeah, I feel like what he played upon
1: was, was a real economic anxiety mm-hmm. in the country. Right. And in COVID, we're seeing that you know, unfold because people lost their jobs and their health insurance and any sense of security that they ever once maybe only had a piece Mm -hmm. of, but now they definitely know that that was um, an illusion. And one of the things I think is important to understand in this moment um, and what Donald Trump did is that he played into the anxiety, the real anxiety people are feeling because, you know, we, we just were coming out of the greatest recession, well, before COVID, Uh, since the Great Depression. And that was impacting working class people. And and the majority of minimum wage workers are women of color. So this is impacting particular communities and their ability to actually take care of themselves and their families. Um, But Donald Trump played into a real grievance, I think, um, and a feeling of insecurity, but essentially pitted white voters against everyone else, saying those people over there, those Latinx people, those black people, those people are the reason why you feel less secure in your household. That's why you feel uh, like you have less economic security. He pitted uh, different types of people against each other. That's why people describe his 2016 campaign as divisive. And right. I think that, you know, what we missed is that the reason why it worked is because mm-hmm. America does have to deal with in a real way. And I think part of that is why there's a racial reckoning in this moment Um, with the history that we've had um, on race and racism and white supremacy and how we have treated people
0: Right. And and it's it's rooted, I would say, and it's rooted in our institutions. And it's rooted even in our political operatives on both sides of the aisle. Mm -hmm. Speak to that experience as a political operative, being the only, uh, oftentimes maybe the only woman of color and oftentimes maybe the only young person trying Mm -hmm. to change a democratic machine that oftentimes only brings in consultants that are from the Midwest and oftentimes just relay their own experience.
1: Yeah, it's really sometimes very frustrating on campaigns, but I do think that The Hillary campaign, I I think you'll you'll see it in the book, Mm -hmm. um, was very diverse. You know, in terms of, you know, comparing it to other presidential campaigns, Mm -hmm. she had more black women than any campaign in history. Um, She had, you know, many people from different communities. The problem is, is with an organization of that size, Mm -hmm. what ends up happening is you're still the only black person in a meeting.
0: Exactly right. And and you're
1: running a campaign against Donald Trump, who is (laughs) being explicitly um, racist and divisive up like on that issue specifically. So it's very important to have people in the room who come from those backgrounds that are being attacked directly and also who understand racism and white supremacy and white privilege in particular and how it manifests in our world, how it impacts people's lives, how it's infused in our policy and in our messaging and in our media and how all of that works together. And for me on the inside, it was like, you know, sometimes screaming into the void a little bit, like being mm-hmm.
0: like, "Am I the only one?" That sometimes, sees this? Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes, you know. I mean, let's I be only? honest. Yeah, I mean, let's yeah. be honest. Erlina. I think one of the challenges, and this is why it is so difficult, because forty percent of America are people of color. Uh, I'm talking about 135 million of us who are strong. That my children, who are seven and uh, eight and six, was if we just had a birthday, represent mm-hmm. the first majority minority community uh, in this country. But if we were to look at the fact that forty percent of us are the ones that are, you know, of, of, of people of color communities, but when it comes to electing a Democrat, it is the communities of color disproportionately and young white women disproportionately that uh, that bring in that president to power. But that those numbers, that parity, is not reflected in those campaigns.
1: Absolutely not. I mean, that's one of the points that I highlight in the book that yes. I think that I think people need to to focus on and highlight. You don't need to win a majority of the the white vote in order to win a presidential election. Now, this is all—it all breaks down different when you go to congressional districts, depending upon the you know the particular constituency. But for the most part, you're right. On the Democratic side, in order to elect Democrats, you need a coalition of diverse communities—diverse communities meaning black, brown, API, young people, single, single un, single unmarried women, single women—and um, and and because most, for the most part you know, married white women vote for Republicans, right? We, we have to just look at the data, right? Mm-hmm. We just look at look at the history of who's voted for who, and then we say, well, who's normally on our side?
0: Well, like white, white males, white males have not voted, a majority white males have not right. voted for a Democratic uh, Democratic president since LBJ. Right. That's even, over it's, 50 it's, yeah. years ago, yeah. right? Yeah. So that's the last. So when we keep talking about how do we bring these Trump voters back, what I'm hearing you say, and what's been my experience, They why focus on the decrease while you have a whole open market? of unregistered, disproportionately young people, disproportionately young people of color that would welcome your, you know, your politics because that's what they're protesting. That's Speak exactly to that. Right. Well, I
1: think that what we've seen in the COVID era, and mm-hmm. you've seen so many young people, Gen Z, um, go into the streets. A lot of these movements and, and protests are being led by young women of color. I love that, young black yeah. women. <laughs> it's, like, it's, so, it's so inspiring. But part of, part of what I think the Democratic Party has an opportunity in this moment You Mm -hmm. can engage those people directly on the issues that they care about because ultimately, I think there are shared goals. There are shared... They may not be the specific you know, bill or whatever, Medicare for all policy and all of the details, but certainly health insurance for more people is something that everybody agrees upon. Equality and justice under the law are things that people are literally protesting now. They can all agree upon those goals. Mm-hmm. And so I think that what's missing is that those people being represented within campaigns, one of the things I talk about in the book is, you know, there's no campaign school for for little black kids. Now, when I wrote the book, you know, mm-hmm. there were there were a few examples of campaign organizations like um color pack and you know organizations that Jessica Birds doing work in training people to run for office but I, but I really think that the pipeline of young staffers of color if you're at home and you're you've graduated um and you don't have your internship or you know you're a high school student waiting to go back to school you know get involved in a campaign virtually because mm-hmm. it's, it's it's that kind of hands-on experience that allows people to impact the world around them and I think that sometimes you know People only think that protests, protesting and activism is a way to be engaged. Mm-hmm. But I also think working on campaigns, to your point about the fact that you can be the only one, we wouldn't be the only one if we had everyone um, you know, go into campaigns and try to work
0: there. So what is your advice for diversification in the campaigns? Because you and I both know that it gets to a certain point that it is, it's sort of like media, right? It, oftentimes it's not the person that is well-versed, it's the person you know. Mm-hmm. How do they break through? And I, one of my critiques historically of many campaigns is that they bring in these really bright young people of color to knock on doors to do all the work. But then they don't see them in leadership roles. But they do see them in the roles that are not necessarily, you know, they're, they're the most passionate and the most engaged, but not necessarily the, the best paid. Right. Well, that's a good point, too, because I think
1: a lot of times, and Mignon Moore, who worked um, as a senior advisor on the campaign in 2016 with me, she always talked about how traditionally democratic campaigns would put the people of color in the quote, field, you know, out out knocking on doors, as you said, and how even the optics of that is all wrong. And that, you know, their staged protest in 1988 was essentially to assert the fact that we need to be in the, you know, at the seat of power, at the table where the decisions are being made. So part of it is hiring black and and brown staff and putting them in all different aspects of the campaign. I mean, one of the cooler things about the, the 16 campaign you know, even though I have certain critiques of it, um, is the presence of Black women in the tech and digital departments. You know, the black, a Black woman created I'm With Her. A Black woman, you know, coded the website, uh, HillaryClinton.com. Mm-hmm. So just understanding that you need those people reflected in all aspects because then you also, you know, you have sort of that, that diverse set of eyes um, mm-hmm. and you, you, those blind spots that always come up. When, when a campaign may put out messaging that seems tone deaf or misses the mark, you know, you'll, you'll have people in there to make sure you, you don't have uh, so many missteps as well.
0: So what would you be your recommendation to the Joe Biden campaign? I know that there was a critique in your book. What would you be your recommendation right now because he is the nominee?
1: He needs to do a mass hiring of young women of color that are either on summer break at home for high school, Um, you know, maybe their sorority, um, you know, they can get connected that way um, Mm -hmm. on their campuses, but there needs to be a very concerted effort to engage young diverse voters so that they actually feel seen. I mean, Stacey Mm -hmm. Abrams talks about identity politics sort of being the flip side, um, or or I I see it sort of as the flip side is I don't see color, and she puts it this way. She says, it's, I see you, right? I see sort of the fulsome, you know, um, fulsomeness of your experiences and um, who you are. I see that you're a woman. I see that you're black. Like I see that and that matters, right? And I think that's a really important thing. So, so I think what Joe Biden needs to do is he needs to make the constituencies that he would like to engage and turn out hopefully in November, mm-hmm. he needs to make them feel seen and heard. So yes, to have movement leaders um, engage directly with the campaign, they need to be speaking on a regular basis. I hope they are. I know that some of this they're doing, but some yeah. of this I don't see it enough eat on the out you know from the outside. And yeah. that's the critique that I think a lot of people had in 16. And we'd be like, Well, we are doing it. And then they'd be like, Well, I didn't see it. And so that's a part of it too.
0: And that is getting into the next and crannies. And I think that you know, most traditional campaigns are used to doing television advertising and they don't recognize that. Uh, that oftentimes the young people, the voters that you want are not on TV. They're not watching TV. Right. And so, absolutely not. One of the things that, absolutely not. I mean, I, what my favorite so far I is barely, the whole fact. <laughs> one of, no, but, but one of, of my favorites is, I mean, and when people say, well, what is the really the power of youth and youth organizing? All we need to show now is what happened during the Trump rally where K-pop mobilized these young people worldwide to, to, to bring up tickets to his Tulsa rally. And, they expected, you know, his campaign manager was touting that over a million people were coming because of the demand and less than 6,000 showed up. Yeah. And then they basically, they got trolled by by the Gen, the, the Gen Z uh, Gen Zers. But I, I point to that because one of the things that you talk about very much is about hashtag kids and what that means. And when you say that, you know, Biden may be not, is not connecting, we know they're at vital We know he's not connecting. We just did a survey where 46 of of young Latinos expected to participate and even then they were soft. That is a code red for me because unlike in African-American and white communities where the parents force their kids to go vote, it's the young Latinos that go force their parents to go vote. So talk a little about this hashtag kids, the power of their voice and how do you communicate to them?
1: Well, I think that um, the hashtag kids is a chapter about the Gen Z and sort of younger millennial activism um, from Black Lives Matter to Parkland, March for Our Lives. Um, Also DACA, um, you know, kids who have been using social media to organize. They're natives
0: exactly. right they're, yeah, na- natives they're social they're native natives. speakers exactly. i like to call them
1: they understand how to use it as a tool they they know that it's not the be all end all they know that you know i think there was a lot of uh, critiques of hashtag activism which is mm-hmm. why i wanted to write this chapter because I've, I've long been a proponent of of twitter as a space to organize but also to teach and have conversations mm-hmm. and to create a space to have a dialogue Well, it used to be better for this, but you could have sort of a a back and forth about something maybe that was uncomfortable to talk about in person. You know, Mm -hmm. we've seen this with Me Too. We've seen this with Guess All Women and Black Lives Matter. Um, So one of the things I think is really important about the hashtag kids chapter is to understand that the kids get intersectionality. They understand that identity matters. They understand that you should respect people's identity. They understand that people who have different backgrounds should be treated the same like on a fun- mm-hmm. in a fundamental core way, right. in, a, in a different way than maybe our parents um, or even my generation. Um, because I think that they've grown up with you know, income inequality, they've grown up with you know, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, they've grown up with um, you know, systemic issues being right in their faces. And then they also have the ability to go on TikTok and learn about white supremacy because that's the content that they're watching mm-hmm. and dance videos too. But they're, learning, but they're learning about it all. And I think that the, the, the TikTok moment was um, important to highlight, I think. And I'm glad that you brought it up because it's one of my favorite things. And it's an evidence that Joe Biden already has an army. <laughs> right. You know? Right. Um, uh, and so all he needs to do is, well, I guess enlist them is the word, but, but <laughs> engage them, you know, where they are um you know i i read a couple things uh recently that where they were sort of debating whether or not they should have a presence on TikTok because it seemed odd because he's so so much older that he would Mm -hmm. but i'm like it doesn't have to be him right you engage those influencers to speak in the message and then they're speaking to their own people and it's actually a validation that joe biden is the best choice right now i mean i think A lot of people, I mean, there's been a debate on Twitter this week. But I think that's really
0: important. But I think what you have to highlight, right, is that this generation seems to be have a different savvy. And yeah. I heard it echoed from, uh, AOC where, and you just said it again. It's like, it's this idea, it's an understanding that we have to have a more pragmatic look of our candidates and this population, this generation is interested saying, I don't need to be in love, but I need right. to know that he might be, he's the right choice right now. And I don't think that that has been communicated enough to them. So unpack that because I think that everybody expects, you know, the, the, Barack Obama moment, at least political right. operatives do, you know, pundits do, but these kids have been, as you mentioned, they you know, we stood out of war in Iraq. They've had the worst recession in yeah. their recent memory that oftentimes they had live in food insecurity. Like, they are of a different savvy and I'd say less coddled generation. Uh, I know that people don't give them that credit, but when I see right. the extensive of what the hardships they've faced, especially among, I would say, black and brown communities disproportionately, mm-hmm. whether we're talking about Black Lives Matter or where we're talking about family separation and right. the anxiety of DACA, if you don't know if you're going to stay here. Speak to how, I, I deeply believe, and I think that's what your book is getting to with this hashtag, is that they have a, they have a different level of maturity, but mm-hmm. they do expect authenticity.
1: Right. I think, I think they, they don't want to hear platitudes.
0: Right. Because they
1: understand that platitudes don't lead to action. Platitudes are you telling me what I want to hear. Mm-hmm. I want you to go do the thing that it will help me. Right. um that will that will help my family have more security and safety um and i think that fundamentally i think this generation because because some of the the crises that we're facing i mean when i wrote this book it was all it was all before COVID. i had no mm-hmm. idea there was going to be a pandemic however i was planning. <laughs> i wish it.
0: you had told me <laughs> I, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, 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 had, I had no idea <laughs> was, You're you were the only <laughs> <I didn't> one <know. laughs> i had no idea but i
1: was preparing for disaster because fundamentally, like as soon as Trump was elected, and in part, I joined the campaign on that impulse of like, it might be the end of the world, let me go do my part. Mm-hmm. Um, and and also believing that Hillary could do a good job as president. I do believe that she she could be a good president, but also I was afraid of Donald Trump. And so mm-hmm. when he won, I was like preparing for the end of the world. I mean, literally, mm-hmm. and that was way before the thought yeah. of that we
0: but I knew do what it I mean, was. But I think you were flagging what people of color and people of color pundits and analysts were saying about Donald Trump. And there was a... Uh, you know, it was, it was a general folks that are making decisions on the stories we cover. That that was that anxiety was ill founded. But the yeah. moment he went down the elevator, he told us who he was. Right, and so exactly. I oftentimes, Elena, really I'm surprised of people being surprised at how terrible he is. A, I said, he's, he's always told us. So what is that? I guess that goes back to the the sensibility of these young black and brown activists that are. To your point, they're looking for authenticity, trying to get people to you know meet them where they are, to meet their needs. How does that change in uh, in a pandemic where we see people marching for uh, uh, for George Floyd and expecting change while the rest of the world is upturned? And I say this because unlike you know you know counter to most uh, to most belief voters you know, we just did a poll and we found that 75% of latinos are in lockstep with black lives matter and in an allyship. and when we look at younger voters that we were talking about that's even bigger what is what significance do you see is that if you're reading the tea leaves and what's oh, the opportunity I, I
1: think the opportunity is that that's a winning coalition mm-hmm. of, of voters but not just because you know they can potentially win elections but they can reshape legislatures they can reshape congress they can reshape the entire country um because when you have um voting power when you have the numbers and then you can build a coalition that can then elect the people that can help your communities i mean that's fundamentally that is why voter suppression is a strategy Mm -hmm. that is why they try to suppress the votes of black and brown people um they understand the power of the vote. <laughs> you know, I think about that all the time because I have family that marched in Selma. And I'm, I just think about the fact that they had to risk their lives for my ability to go vote. Mm-hmm. But think about how, how powerful that bo- vote must be, that people would threaten the lives or potentially murder others, beat others on the Edmund Pettus mm-hmm. Bridge, just so that I could participate in this democracy. Mm-hmm. So it must be something
0: worth fighting for. Well, and this brings me to a, one of the most powerful quotes in your book that I found quite moving. And it says, you know, and basically you, you state, when you're accustomed to privilege, equality feels like oppression. As someone who has studied political uh, politics extensively, what do you think is one of the most root causes of the racist rhetoric? And how does that inflame, how does that, how does the president use that? And how do we combat it?
1: Well, I, I talk about this on SiriusXM on Signal every day with my co-host because she's a white woman and I'm a black woman and we're both feminists, intersectional feminists. So we mm-hmm. have great conversations about, you know, just how we're raised differently, right? If I, if mm-hmm. you're you're in a, uh, a body and you have white skin, then you are raised differently. People treat you differently mm-hmm. and you don't realize it sometimes. It's just it's how it is.
0: And mm-hmm. there are a lot of... Um, Implicit messages. Right. They, they don't go. They don't walk in, and you don't. They don't feel people clutching their purses or people being Literally. followed around in, you know, in department stores because they're not sure if you could afford something. I mean, right. those are those That's are the- microaggressions that we are aware of.
1: Exactly. And they add up. The thing is, is that I think people, That's right. I, I never really like call it a micro because I feel like by the end of the day, it feels no, not micro. <laughs> it
0: feels. <laughs> the color, no, but you're right. I mean, they're microaggressions they that yeah. make up. Yeah. Because because that person whoever followed you in the store forgets about you, but you get in your car and you're still fuming about it, I'm right? Still and fuming. Still, yep. Yep. No, I mean, I, and I'm saying like yeah. that. Yes. I, I relate. I understand. Yes.
1: Yeah. So I think that, you know, the the conversation that we have as a black woman and a white woman is essentially about the the fact that white children are raised whether explicitly or implicitly because of the culture they they um consume because of the you know what's on tv what's on magazines who's in positions of power mm-hmm. that white people are better they're better that's what they're taught um you know they they don't see a black president until barack obama um they don't see many of the ceos uh, be anything other than white men, um, you know, in very few cases, right? And, and so I think when, you, when you're accustomed to just see yourself reflected back, but, uh, but in the best possible way, in the positions of power and authority and privilege and success, and the image of other types of people you see are always negative or stereotyped or racist, flat out racist. Right. Um, that has an effect. Not everybody realizes that they have these biases, but I always say that everybody has implicit biases because we grow up in this country um, mm-hmm. and, and and we're consuming all of that pop culture. We're, we're consuming all of that messaging and we and then we, we, we treat people differently, better or worse. I remember when I was a little kid, you know, in school, I was the only black child until ninth grade. And so that had an impact on one, my, my ability to recognize that I was being treated differently because I was the only one who was different. Mm -hmm. So, so it was eye opening. at like, I think it was third grade when I was like, okay, when I, when I'm excited and I know the answer and I get, you know, really aggressive about it, I get reprimanded. I get told, wait your turn. Literally. Like I was told like, oh no, wait your turn. Um, but when the, the white, boys usually would do it, Mm -hmm. they would get praised. I noticed that disparity. And then you have like, you know, multiply that kind of experience, you know, in perpetuity and that's the experience of a person who is not white. And so that has an effect on how you behave as an adult and it has an effect on how you treat people around you. I think, you know, the the debate we're having currently about people not wearing masks is also a manifestation of this just privilege. Privilege. Um, of you know, not having to be bothered to protect other people because you've heard on the news that maybe black and brown communities are being disproportionately impacted. And so, well, that's not me. That's
0: not my community. Well, I'm not that's an not essential my, right. Well, and I'm right. not the essential worker and I'm right. not the person that has to get I, I have the privilege of staying at home and going to the lake and to the beach if I wish, so you know, not, I, I I'm in total alignment agreement. I think yeah. that does what is interesting. We um we participate. participated in the twenty poli- first century policing task force with President Obama, mm-hmm. trying to change the culture of police because that was seemed to be the most uh, systemic way to enact change at the time. And one of the things that was highlighted that. That speaks to your point of how people of color are portrayed in media makes an impact on policing because it turned out that the majority of police of white police officers were coming from very rural small towns and then placed in the middle of urban centers. And so having conversations, recognizing that the only time they ever had an inner, they saw an interaction of a black person or Latino in the case of a black person, the images of law and order, this is true, law and order helped form that they were, you know, drug addicts or that they carried guns or they were incredibly violent. And in the case of Latinos, that they were domestic workers, undocumented breaking the law. And so if you can imagine someone from those formative years being in a very rural area, meeting uh, a person of color, Mm-hmm. Uh, in the you know in in a place where they're trying to de-escalate, but they are, have already been conditioned to believe that that person is going to hurt them no matter what. You can imagine those reactions, right? And well, so I think you, to your yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and you see that you see yeah. that in
1: so many of these videos. Um, unfortunately, you see that moment where mm-hmm. the reaction is to harm in defense mm-hmm. because you know they're quote unquote scared for their lives. But I think we've also seen videos where the police and how they treat white. White people,
0: they are arrested. Stark differently because and they have different images of them. Exactly. They have it's part of the community. So, exactly. but I want to talk about the. the and I think something that you point out was very that was also very important because the tendency of having this aggression and especially this you know racist rhetoric is always speak in misogynistic language coming from the right has right. always you know it's almost like oh we don't do this on the progressives right. but yeah. you talk specifically about in your a whole chapter about the Bernie Bros and you're running with them during the twenty sixteen presidential. Presidential election, and I quote: "To this very day, if I criticize Bernie online or on television, my mentions and social media profiles are bombarded by angry supporters harassing me in an attempt to silence my Bernie dissent." Can you expand on why you felt that was important to highlight uh, this, uh, this this particular behavior coming from the left? Well, because I think we're better than this.
1: You mm-hmm. know, we we're we're this we're the party that at least in in principle. Um, cares about equality and justice and treating people fairly, um, and I don't understand how you can, you know, see the efficacy of Medicare for all because you care so much about the health and security and safety of other your fellow Americans. You're for uh, Medicare for all, and the people that don't support Bernie Sanders, you know, the tweet that I got all the time was like, "You just want people to die." I'm like, "No, I, I literally do not. Like, I literally want Medicare for all." As well. would people just, really say that
0: to you? Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes. Yes. Um, and in addition, I think you know when when you're not you know lockstep in with what they want, um, mm-hmm. then it was you know a silencing tactic. You know I think either they were you know bombarding my social media profiles, you know calling me names. I mean I muted a lot of it because I just got so much of it that after a while you just you know mute it. It's it doesn't really exist in your because I can't let it sort of get inside. I can't I can't internalize the feedback of people that I don't know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but I also, but I also, you know, it's very toxic and I I called it out because it exists. It's a thing that is happening Mm -hmm. and we need to deal with it. And one of the ways in which we can deal with it is to be honest about the fact that it was happening and it was happening, you know, um, and that there was a certain overlap between some of the impulses, the misogyny, the racism, Mm -hmm. you know, that women of color were, you know, publicly attacked or, trolled if you will i don't like the word trolls because it dehumanizes the person doing the harm and so i I just i call them a-hole but you know we can't so i i I don't i don't think you can use that (laughs) no so i i I just but i don't i don't like trolls because i feel like trolls makes it sound like it's not a person it is a person making a decision (laughs) to send a harmful or hateful (laughs) comment to another person and on our side i feel like we should just we should not have a tolerance for that i wanted um bernie sanders himself to speak to how it was incredibly inappropriate in the progressive side of the, uh, the political spectrum to tolerate misogyny and racism among mm-hmm. his supporters and even among some of his staff, frankly. Mm-hmm. So I think, um, you know, the reckoning around that, still, we still have work to do. Um, but I do think that, you know, it's not all of his supporters. It never is all of anything. And it, it's, it's only a small group of um, what is a large and diverse group Mm-hmm. Of of Bernie's coalition, right? So one of the other points that I make in the book, which is important to note, is that there are young Latinos and young Black people who support Bernie Sanders, but their voices are being obscured
0: mm-hmm.
1: because the these other voices with the ugly messaging are loud and angry, mm-hmm. um, and so you're they're actually harming their larger you know goal and movement by not you know fully confronting those in their own movement that you know, are are perpetuating some of the same behaviors we see from some of the Trump supporters.
0: And so how does the, I guess that, that piece of it, how does that translate into the coalition that you and I have discussed oftentimes that is needed? If the, you have a group, a segment of Bernie bros that say, my way or the highway, or that bleeds into what we are constantly on the progressive side trying to combat. And we're trying to have an elevated discussion so that we could actually provide solutions to a lot of these communities. What does that look like for that coalition that is needed uh, to win in November?
1: Well, I look at it like this. I mean, it's such a small group of people on the progressive left that I feel like either, you know, they'll see the light and, you know, they can be like okay i was kind of a jerk about it but we all agree mm-hmm. that we do want some sort of universal healthcare medicare for all would be ideal but somebody's going to have to go in and negotiate with the republicans <laughs> for <after> that <laughs> so so you know we may not get everything we want but that doesn't mean the person that went in to do the negotiating is a sellout or you know the de- you know more more uh, negative for us than the republicans again mm-hmm. i think You know, we have to be relative about it and fair, relative and fair about it. Um, And I think the coalition that we're trying to build certainly includes white progressives. But fundamentally, the core of it is people of color. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for the folks that are like, well, you know, the Trump supporters, you know, they were just, you know, they had economic anxiety. They weren't racist, right? You know, that that Bernie Sanders said something to that effect. Amy Klobuchar has said something to that effect. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm tired of hearing that because Donald Trump cage children... Um, and he's, he called, you know, Mexicans rapists. He asked the first black president for his birth certificate. Those are just three examples that I would like to cite to say that I don't have to wonder if he's racist. Right? But to your
0: point is it's that it's not the rhetoric, it's his policy. It's, a, it's, 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 it's more the policy. policy. It's his policy that he's, that he's, he's racist. harming,
1: he's actually harming those communities that he's talking badly about, you know, to your point.
0: Right, and so one of the and, and you mentioned it again is like you need a coalition in order to win, and oftentimes you know in the book you highlight the importance of black and brown voters. Talk a little bit about unpack that because most people don't realize the that together because there's so much alignment in the issues. Whether we are talking about policing, where we're talking about Black Lives Matter, where we're talking about healthcare, specifically around uh, around with young uh, black and brown uh, um, voters what is that potential? Talk about Texas. Talk about California.
1: Yeah. So Texas and California are the two states in the country where uh, Latinx voters are already the majority of the electorate. And so you see just that alone, that white voters are a minority, and I, I don't even like to say majority minority. I don't either. I, like, <laughs> I, I found myself I
0: saying it earlier. Yeah. I was like, it's terrible. <laughs> you know,
1: I, I, so in the book, I, I think I say like, just say white voters are going to be a minority. It's okay. It won't hurt. You know what <laughs> I mean? People are people just try to try to avoid saying it, like it's going to hurt them. I'm like, no, it's okay. And like, I understand that you were raised in a country where you're used to, you're calling groups of other people minorities. Now mm-hmm. you are going to be a minority. <laughs> just right. internalize that um, a little bit. Because Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that you're going to be treated how, you know, white people have treated minorities. Mm -hmm. Um, It just means that, you know, the ability to access power is different. So the Mm -hmm. coalition we can build um, between black and brown communities can be around issues like racial justice and health care, income inequality, um, and also the idea that, you know, there are specific needs that communities need. So, so Black and brown communities need big investments in education and reinvestments from the police department to services in actual communities. I mean, these are practical
0: things. And I think they're the, so they the same within the Latino community, right? Those right. are the, the same. And I also, oftentimes, when we talk about this idea of even climate change, we get left out. Yeah. But our communities are disproportionately impacted by climate injustice. Exactly. and uh, and the food deserts, and it's all compounded. And I think what your your book is trying to also try to raise the flag of is that the future is born, the future is here. And right. how are we preparing America for that diversity uh, that is our richness if we know how to provide the resources to sh- uh, to lift all boats? Speak to that.
1: Well, I feel like, you know, part of what we have to snap out of is the fact mm-hmm. that, like, You know, we're just so used to focusing on on whiteness and everything. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. every single thing. I remember as a little girl, as I said, I was the only Black child. And so, you know, I I would walk into the store and I'd look at the magazines and it would be all white faces and maybe Oprah. But then it was, that was it. And so Mm -hmm. I feel like representation is a piece of this also. Mm -hmm. You know, people want to see themselves reflected back. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, the fact that there's no Latinx television show on TV right now. Zero. That the fact that, you know, a lot of shows... Uh, get pegged as like a black show or a mm-hmm. Latinx show, um, you know, because of uh, the majority makeup of the cast. I mean, mm-hmm. I just did that too, but I, but I think to make the point that we're lacking yeah. in right. representation, um, not that a show that has Latinx actors. would But be that pegged yeah, that.
0: But, but but literally, I think what you're, I think your point is so valid is that the reason we could actually say that a Donald Trump came into power was because the country has demographically is changing so quickly. And all of a sudden neighbors looked up and said, I don't recognize my neighbor and I don't feel secure. And instead of having a media that has been talking about our stories, bringing the country along to the reality that for the very first time, there'll be 12 million more young voters than baby boomers who are two thirds young people of color. Right. So it's like, it's all of a sudden, like we woke up in 2020 and we're like, oh my gosh, we're brown and black, <laughs> which is not the case. And that's, I, I mean, that's the whole point of your book. Uh, exactly. so, like, so I want like to ask you. I'm trying to tell you guys. <laughs> <laughs> and like, and like, and I, guess, I mean this is probably why we do the work that we do. It's like, yes, but, but this is where I, you know, the, the you know, because people say, well, that seems so theoretical, but in your book, you, know, like, you mentioned the hypocrisy of how black women who are running for office are treated. Are treated versus how white men are treated. Specifically, you mentioned how Pete, uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg was able to mount a very successful campaign with little experience. What's some of the steps that Democrats can take to ensure that women of color are given the same opportunities for success?
1: So one of the things that we really need to do as a party, and I'm so glad to see um, you know, Quinton and Stephanie James and um, Jessica Bird, and also even Higher Heights in terms of mm. sort of the funding and financing um, of campaigns and supporting campaigns, but there there needs to be more infrastructure in place that not only, you know, trains candidates, but also trains operatives.
0: Mm-hmm. Because
1: if you don't have diversity in terms of operatives and, you know, sort of that training ground for people who eventually could run her office, then you're never going to have the representation that you need to sort, sort of reflect um, the makeup of the electorate. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I think fundamentally for me, what's missing on our side is the infrastructure to, to build that political power um, through, you know, staffing campaigns, staffing legislative offices, and also having people run for office. I mean, some of the organizations that do this work, um, they're new, they just started. So, you know, we're, we're just in the beginning of this. Um, but I think that's where a lot of the investment needs to happen. I mean, in terms of when you're already running, so in the case of Kamala Harris, I think what we need to do as a progressive movement is be honest about the ways in which um, Black women are taxed. And, and mm-hmm. women generally, women candidates, their mistakes are taxed and, and weighed heavily, more heavily than the men. And well, that you think Kamala of what just Harris, happened to Katie
0: Hill, right? I mean, Katie exactly. Hill is a perfect example uh, to unpack the fact that they, someone, her ex-husband had, was about to leak nude photos of her and she felt that her career had ended. Whereas that was not the case even when Anthony, Anthony Weiner did the same thing. He thought he could have another go at it, so. There were, it, there's, a, there's a
1: few members of Congress who they're either still in there or they went on a lot longer than you thought they could because um, they were men. And I, and I think that, you know, first of all, there's, it's so rare for a woman politician in an elected office to have a, a scandal um, that even has any of the characteristics um, in, in terms of what, what Katie Hill dealt with in terms mm-hmm. of um, the, the misogyny and the revenge nature of that particular... Well, and I'm it seemed like small scandal. potatoes, right? Compared yeah. to
0: what we're Some experiencing the at the things, White House, right? Like, right. I, yeah. I mean, well, we actually have receipts for the other guy. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, it, well, what's
1: upsetting about it is I think we, we're not honest about the double standards. Mm-hmm. So for example... People to judge is basically my age. We're, we're at, around the same age. And this is, I think, why I had such a visceral response. Because I know that as a woman of color, I could not show up at a CNN town hall running for president and tell everyone that I'll get to the details of my policy later. Like, I wouldn't, Jake Topper would stop the conversation. He wouldn't continue talking to me because I'm not a serious candidate for president. <laughs> Right. And well, yet- and,
0: and, but, but, but I think he even missed a spot. The reason he was on that stage was because donors believed he could do it. But if, yeah. as a woman of color, even trying to get capital wouldn't They wouldn't, for, they for wouldn't finance venture, my would, campaign. Right.
1: <laughs> I wouldn't get any money, <laughs> is what I'm saying. And yeah. I think that that's sort of the point. I mean, Kamala Harris obviously had to um, end her presidential campaign because of the slow fundraising. Um, and that's too often what happens with candidates of color and women Um, who, for some reason, people don't trust them with their money without them having, you know, proved that they could do the thing. Um, And men don't have to prove it. And even then there's a big question,
0: right? Even there's, (laughs) I I, I love in the progressive movement, you talk a little bit about the donor community and the billionaires and, you know, I would love you to dig in that, but (laughs) I've always, you know, I'm always struck by by individuals that say, I really believe in in funding the the Latinx community. I really believe in funding the African-American community. And then they go give the money to someone who doesn't wake up every morning thinking of how to actually bring us under the fold. Speak to that privilege because to me it's mind blowing, right? It's you're 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 not it's kind of like in in politics where the campaigns oftentimes do not reflect the people that they're trying to woo. It's the same thing when it comes to to those who invest.
1: Oh, exactly. They they, they don't give money to to people who haven't traditionally been given money for or, or been invested in, and so that just makes the cycle. It goes around and around and around, and the same people are being put in positions of power. The same people are being um, hired to put. Uh, elected officials into office, and then it just keeps going. And then the you know the chief of staff becomes the candidate, and then we just keep doing it again. And we're just going to keep doing it
0: again. <laughs> it's Groundhog so, Day. You invented it. Like,
1: like... we, could we not? Could we not right. do that? And and I think you know to the point that a lot of people say is like identity politics is just you just want to elect black people because they're black. And I'm like no, but it is helpful to mm-hmm. have somebody who is black be in a position of power because that person has lived in a black body their whole life, and that they're they're going to bring that perspective to policy. So that's, that's why it's so important. It's not because I want to see a picture with, you know, diversity. That's not, that's nice. Mm -hmm. Um,
0: But it's about the perspective. Most well, perspective, and when people say, well, my vote doesn't matter, I point to the fact that for the very first time during the 2018 election, Generation yep. XYZ voted in the most diverse government mm-hmm. in, in the House that we'd ever seen. And if you ask me, well, why does diversity matter? Now there's 400 pieces of legislation that's a blueprint of rising the tide on everyone. And right. that would not have been the case had we did, we not have this diverse body that was ushered in by a diverse group of Americans, to your point. And so one of the things that uh, as we come to, to close, I really want to ask you is that young people, young women listening to this conversation, uh, you know, Zerlina, they might be saying, oh, my goodness, you know, I thought that the political career was for me, but maybe I don't belong in that space because it is either so hard or there's so many barriers what advice do you give them because i am of the mind that we actually need to flood the zone with young leadership because to your point earlier they don't need the culture shift that being gay is okay and having you know black, black lives mm-hmm. matters that daca right. should be a right and that the that the climate is on fire they they've made the they have grown up where in in a in a world where we don't have to convince them that to be true. But listening to our conversation, they might have trepidation of jumping in. What's your advice? Well, I
1: always say that, like you know, I understand that it appears that the system is not so fair all the time. We all know that, um, but I also say that you know your right to vote is powerful. If it weren't, they wouldn't be trying so hard to take it away. And, you know, you have to participate in the process in order to get to the change you want. So don't try Don't fall back on the cynicism of it's too hard. It won't matter. My vote won't matter. It won't even count if we all collectively, um, you know, go and participate or or run ourselves because you you don't
0: have to run. So what's your advice for a young person running? Because I think that, you know, and it's. I mean, AOC, I, she, I think she broke the mold because she went ima- immediately for her office. Right. And people say, well, how did she do this? I said, well, young people happen to have aged into her demographic. Right. And we see young people aging in all the time now because yeah. Generation Z is la- the largest generation. So, exactly. for, but, but they don't have to aim for Congress. What other positions can they aim for? I think sometimes oh, the people don't
1: see well, it. Yeah, I love it. I mean, run for school board, run for city council, run for your community board in new york city they have community boards in different in the different boroughs all around new york city um you can you can run for congress you can also run for state legislators state state legislatures in most states um are not full-time positions so you can do be state legislator and work your regular job at 30. i've met state legislators in new york that are my age or like 28 you know when they when they were elected it's really exciting um, the other thing I would remind people is that if you are, you know, looking at running for office of any kind and you're worried that you don't have a, the qualifications, I want you to, re- I want you to remember, um, that Matt Gates is in Congress and that, you know, Louie Gomert's in Congress and that there are a lot of men- don't look who- them
0: up if you don't know who they are. <laughs> you don't know who they are, look
1: them up. But like there are men in Congress who never had to, never questioned whether or not they were right for the job or had the right experience, clearly they, they don't. <laughs> and they're in office, right? right, multiple terms. So it's important to say, look, if you think that there's a problem in your community that needs solving, figure out one, what role it is and whether or not you can run for it to go solve it. Because that's the majority of women run for office to solve a specific problem, like Mm -hmm. potholes or something like that. So I think, you know, women were were solutions oriented, We're more willing to compromise once in office. And so having more of us in there would just make for a better government. So if you're a young woman out there, don't just, don't just, you know, you don't have to be AOC on the first try, Mm -hmm. but try to be a leader within your community um, you know, to improve the problems around you. Try that first. And then additionally, you can virtually volunteer or work um, on the Biden campaign. I would recommend doing that. Presidential campaigns are the best experience for every job. You learn all the skills
0: for every job. It's true. Actually, it's, it's, I actually believe that to be true if you're every a job. staffer for, for that. Absolutely. And so in your book, you talk very much about uh, white politics and the importance of uh, focusing on people of color and the importance to, to ch- make the change the democratic agenda wants, what is your advice for white allies? how can they how can they be present this, their best self? How can they actually ensure that there is cultural change?
1: Well, I think part of the problem is the lack of acknowledgement that white privilege is exists <laughs> first, um, but also that they benefit from it because I think you know, oftentimes the sort of comeback when you're talking about white privilege is, well, I'm not privileged. I'm not rich. I'm not. Mm -hmm. I don't have that. And then I always, you know, use a different example. Um, Did you ever think about what you were wearing before you went for a jog? Because you might be shot Mm
0: -hmm. in that
1: outfit. Like somebody would have mistaken you for a burglar and killed you. And then the second part that I always have to add on, then no one would get in trouble for it. Like literally you'd be killed. And then also the system says, It didn't matter. No one's even going to be held accountable because there's always the two parts to the injustice there. So if you've never had that thought, that's privilege. And it's easy to acknowledge that that's a privilege that you enjoy that doesn't make you a bad person. But you also have to sort of be an accomplice in trying to dismantle the systems that are making it possible for Black people to repeatedly be killed and then also secondarily nobody gets in trouble for that. You know, I, I think under, valuing Black lives is both, um, you know, recognizing the ways in which you do not have to deal with those same harms potentially because you benefit, you know, you have the benefit of white skin, but also raising kids that have that, you know, the anti-racist mindset um, to quote, you know, the number one bestseller, how to be an anti-racist. And, right. um, you know, who, who do treat people um, not, you know, I think there's, there's something to be said for the generation of people that were like, I don't see color. Like don't raise your kids like that, mm-hmm. raise your kids to see and validate, acknowledge difference, um, and really learn to embrace it because I think that's what makes a miracle cool,
0: mm-hmm.
1: honestly, um, and fundamentally. And I think the younger generation, I think their creativity around difference. I mean, their ability, I, when I go on TikTok, it's like dance videos and like, you know, tutorials about white supremacy. Right. I mean, they're, they're a different breed. Right. Um, uh, uh, this generation, um, they, they care about But I think we need to speak to that. And I think to
0: your way. Yeah, I think we, and they, and they care about it in a deep way. And, you know, when you say, you know, diversity in America is cool, the only other person that I know that really, other entity that really understands that is Russia right? Yeah. And that's for a whole yeah. different conversation. But the reason that they're trying to create this animus among uh, the tribes that we don't really, that is because he believe, they believe that that is our greatest strength. Yeah. And so it is this diversity of richness that I believe deeply prepares us for our future. But we do have to be vocal and speak those conversations. And your book does that. It really sheds light on these fundamental pieces that uh, the me- almost sometimes even the mechanics of things that we take for granted because it's just a system that is versus what should it be, especially when we recognize that if we want to change the White House and ho- Congress and the state legislators, there's a vast group of people that we're not talking to. And it's because we don't have the right people helping usher them into making the right decisions uh, in candidates' ears. And with that, I know that we are facing tremendous chaos. We are, from, you know, I keep saying, you know, we have a pandemic. We're on the eve of an economic depression. And we also have the 60s, the nineteen sixty level riots in the streets. Mm-hmm. All of it together, you know, my mom always said, you know, God doesn't give you what you cannot withstand. So clearly our generation can withstand this. But what is, gives you hope at the end of the day, right? Because there's so much anxiety. What, What, what is the purpose? What gives you hope? Well, I've been thinking a lot during pandemic about the fact that this one
1: big time out that we're on mm-hmm. is, a mom- is almost the universe sort of forcing us to reflect upon some of our mistakes, um, namely voting Donald Trump into the White House, mm-hmm. um, despite all the evidence of, you know, the racism, misogyny, bigotry, all of that, but just really unfitness, right? So, mm-hmm. so for me, I, was the mo- I wasn't afraid of the racism. I was upset by the racism. I was afraid of the, the deportation the potential for deportation mm-hmm. forces. I remember that was a big conversation among staffers on the campaign, the fear of that. And understanding that communities um, that would be directly impacted, You know, they were in horror, like, just a state of fear mm-hmm. consistently. And so mm-hmm. I think you know, in this moment, I, I think pandemic, it allows us time to reflect. Some people don't have time because they have kids and they mm-hmm. have to be teachers <laughs> and full-time employees. Mm-hmm. Um, so caveat. But I do think a lot of us are sort of thinking about our mortality. We're thinking about the ways in which we care about other people around us, right? We're having a debate over wearing masks. As the daughter mm-hmm. of a scientist, I'm, I'm screaming into the void all the time. Like, what do you mean? Well, the, the world is mask?
0: scratching their heads. They don't understand that. They don't uh, understand what's <laughs> wrong with us. Right. I mean, so I guess, I mean, as we conclude the the, the conversation, I just want to give you the last word of what do you think is, you know, the the biggest opportunity when someone picks up white politics. Well, I
1: think that the biggest opportunity is understanding your part within a larger, you know, historical framework, right? You're somebody who exists in a time where America is going to be minority white by 2045. That has never happened. So just mm-hmm. that's sort of, you know, if you're in this moment, like this is a moment where you're living through literal history. I think we feel that viscerally when we look mm-hmm. outside. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think that you know everybody has a part to play in this. So you're, yeah, you're a voter. Um, but one of the stories that I always tell from the Obama campaign in 2007, um, before um, I actually joined um, in 2008, um, is when I was registering voters in New Jersey before I moved to Virginia to work for the campaign. And the girl who was in charge was 17, and she wouldn't even be 18 by the election day. And I was like, "Why are you here?" And she was like, "Well, I have to live in the country." And I was like. <laughs>
0: I was like
1: I am dumb and, yeah. then, it, and then she <laughs> said they, they she said well I'm one vote but if I register to 100 people today that's 100 votes and I was like math yes yeah. math.
0: it's so ma- I'm I, here because of math, yeah. math. <laughs> so,
1: so I feel like you know fundamentally understanding that everybody can participate that's the cool thing about this country we can all participate I mean if you paint paint, Paint about Joe Biden, paint about the election, paint about, you know, the issues that we care about. If you sing, sing a song, if you write poetry, do that. Like everybody can participate. That's, that's exactly right.
0: And I think and that's and I think that's right. I mean, sometimes people ask me, Well, you know, what can I do? I'm like, Well, what's your talent? contribute your talent to the movement, because we need everyone's talent uh, to defeat the dark force. And that was that, Zerlina. I want to thank you for your time. Thank you you for writing the end of white politics. I think it could not have come a better time. Folks, please pick it up. I think that we'll all see ourselves in the story, but also it's a roadmap to the solution. Thank you, uh, everyone, for joining us today. I'm Maria Teresa Kumar. To To take a spin off of what Zerlina said is register, vote, participate. Leave it all on the field this November. Stay safe, wear a mask, be healthy. Thank you. Thank you, Zulina.
1: Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. You can also send us an email at podcast at c-span.org.